You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. This is the Comedian's Comedian podcast, the show that gets under the skin and into the mind of your favourite comedians, tries to find out more about their creative process and personal development and often tries to make them cry. Music, please. I'm really enjoying queuing in the music. This is a thing. Shall I keep doing this? No, it's probably annoying. Well, welcome, welcome. Uh, Today I'm talking to Garrett Millerick, and this is a live episode, uh, not from the Edinburgh Festival, but in slightly less usual circumstances. This is coming to you live and direct from the Barn Theatre in Welling Garden City, which is a lovely amateur dramatics theatre that is owned by the Amateur Dramatics Society there. Garrett is a fantastic comic. He had a brilliant Edinburgh show this year, Sunflower and really started to feel something happening this year at Edinburgh, uh, as we will go on to discuss. Now, Garrett has a theatrical background, so I thought he was the perfect person to talk to this audience, who are quite unlike the regular live audience for the Comedians Comedian podcast. This is a bunch of lovely older people who are into amateur dramatics, and so you might hear me explain rather more along the way uh, in terms of uh, in-jokes and uh, casual references to various British gigs and gig circuits uh, in order to, to not leave everyone everybody behind. So it's it's an unusual one, but a fun one. Uh, Garrett's show this year had an enormous emotional impact and a really uh, painful and yet satisfying emotional core to it, whilst also being very, very funny. So I hope you're going to enjoy finding out more about that as we talk to Mr. Garrett Millerick. Let's. Um, I warned you we might start with this. Yeah. But um, we've just seen you uh, perform half an hour or so of your set. Some of it was from your recent Edinburgh show, Sunflower. Yeah. Uh, some of it was uh, older material, the sort of club material. Yeah. Um, I know that you made a set of decisions just before walking on stage here. Yeah. Uh, given the context of the gig, so let's start by talking a little bit about that. Uh, okay. Yeah. I was going to do uh, because this is my second gig back uh, since the Edinburgh Festival. So I've been uh, I've been for two and a half weeks just watching television and doing a bit of DIY. Um, so I was going to treat you all to the first half hour of my Edinburgh fringe set, and then walked in the room and then saw it was kind of this weird pub sort of vibe. And it was far much more of a, a gig than a nerd fest than I thought it was going to be. So I decided I'm going to I'll, I'll go Saturday night on this and do it as a, a, a gig gig, you know. Yes. And yeah. how, and how did you enjoy it? <laughs> <laughs> how was it for you? I had a whale of a time. Did you all enjoy yourselves? <laughs> cool. Well, let's make the next hour as comfortable as we possibly can, Stu. <laughs> So, look, you're someone who, uh, at the last, at the most recent Edinburgh Festival, only a month ago now, you did a show yeah. called Sunflower. And I remember running into you halfway through the festival yeah. when I came along to see that show. And you said to me, some, you felt like something's happening this year. Yeah. Talk, talk to us a bit about that and, uh, and exactly what you meant. Well, it was a very sort of interesting um, process in terms of writing the show. It was, the show was not what I thought it was going to be. Uh, the show went through about three phases. I started writing a show at the beginning of the year and I set myself the challenge of doing um, 
55 minutes of stand-up, of, of straight gag stand-up, uh, which I'd done in 2015 and really enjoyed. And I, I, love, I love story shows and I, I love, um, you know, themed shows. Um, but I decided, OK, well, I've done two of those in a row. I'm, I'm going to go going to go back and do, like, no props, no anything, just bang, bang, 55. So I started working on that. And then in April of uh, this year, uh, myself and my wife um, uh, became pregnant. Rather, my wife became pregnant. Um, and so that kind of changed my outlook on what I was writing and various viewpoints and things. And I started to kind of then start writing a different show. And neither of those things up to that point, sort of April, May, had really kind of coalesced into what would be a show. But they were both kind of in that format of joke, joke, joke. Uh, and then, unfortunately, um, we, we lost the baby. We had a miscarriage. Um, so I just took a, a, I took a period of time off comedy and I wasn't thinking about Edinburgh. I wasn't thinking about what we were doing. Um, and just kind of put it put it aside, and then I started back up on one evening. I, I took the notebook out uh, after Sarah had gone back to work, and I just started gigging again. And I started working on the show. And that night, uh, she was out; and she'd collapsed. And it basically, the thing that's turned out that we hadn't had a miscarriage; we'd had an ectopic pregnancy that had been missed. Um, and then that got very serious, and we had a, a period of time in in, in hospital. And uh, and then again, I had to take another. Sarah's off work for six weeks. That's another period of time where I wasn't thinking about Edinburgh, wasn't thinking about the show. Um, so I put the thing together in about four weeks, four and a half weeks, and I had I had about 35, 40 minutes of material that I'd written up to that point that was essentially two beginning thirds of, of shows. And um, I can't remember exactly when, but I was listening to demos of an unfinished Ben Folds 5 album. And I thought, oh, okay. When I made the decision, like, do you cancel it or do you do it? And I thought, okay, well, I can present the 40 minutes I had as sort of a demo of an unfinished album and then do the back end of the show about how I couldn't finish that show. So that was just a basic idea. It ended up being a more cohesive piece of work uh, than I thought it was going to be. Um, when I started, I thought it was really going to be three chunks, but it ended up having a having a, a, a flow to it. Um, but that was kind of how that came about. And then in the first, I did a preview of that. The first preview I did was on the 10th of July. And it was mainly friends who knew the story. So we got up to sort of a point, And then when I told the story of what had happened, um, that was... Uh, they all knew the story. And then everyone was being kind of very supportive and giving me notes and things. And I kind of felt at that point there were a couple of comedians there who said, you've really got something there that could be great. And then uh, the next five previews were really average. (laughs) And then then I had basically about six days to go till Edinburgh and this thing's kind of weighing down on my... I was like, oh, if I take the worst thing that's ever happened to my family and turn it into a really average show, having said publicly that I'm going to try and hit that target... What a horrible month it's going to be. <laughs> um, and then, it, it, yeah, it sort of ended up... I had, I had a preview um, at uh, the Harrison in King's Cross, which is a place I've done a lot of shows, uh, where it all just clicked about three days before Edinburgh. And uh, that was a relief. And then it, on the first day of Edinburgh, I was very lucky. I had a reviewer in on the first day who, uh, who wrote a very nice review of it. And from that, everything just kind of fell into line. Because as you, you know yourself, like a, a lot of this can come down to luck. But I was very lucky. Having had sort of like four or five months of being very unlucky <laughs> and then had this thing of being very lucky in that, uh, in that initial two, three-day period. But I think as well there was, something, uh, there was something about the show 
which was very strong, which was the, the, the tension between the fact that the show was called Sunflower. Yeah. It was initially you were challenging yourself to present an upbeat show. Yeah. And we saw you struggle with that concept. If you had decided, yeah. well, it makes me think two things. One, if you decided that it was going to be a really difficult emotional show and then that happened, that would have turned into a different sort of... Yeah, well, it was one of those things of, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. I think if I'd had sort of eight months, ten months to do it, I wouldn't have done that show. And it was, it, it, it literally came down to, you got to cancel it or do that. <laughs> that was it. Or, or could, like, try to cobble together, uh, like, a best of. So, yeah, that idea of being, yeah, trying to do... So, I called it Sunflower after my favourite Beach Boys album, um, just because... Why not? There's a Patrick Marber thing when he was saying about uh, writing Closer, when he'd written the play, he didn't have a title for it. So he went, oh, I'll just call it after my favourite album by my favourite band, which is Joy Division's Closer. Uh, and I heard that story about six, seven years ago and thought, oh, that's a good way of naming things. So you know that thing you get that call and go, when are you going to call this? I was like, I'll name it after something that I really love and I really love the kind of vibe of and then I'll have to kind of meet the challenge of, of, yes. of that. That's an interesting... There are lots of um, uh, different ways you can kind of challenge yourself when naming a show that you're going to present at a festival months before the show is actually completed. Yeah. I remember Adam Hills years ago did a show called Go You Big... It was called Go You Big Red Fire Engine because he'd heard a mum <laughs> shout at a kid or a little kid shouted at his mum, Go You Big Red Fire Engine. And because he called the show that, he couldn't help but smile every time he sat down to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did a show a couple of years ago called A Selection of Things I've Said to Taxi Drivers, which was... Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that, that was... So that was, that, was the, that was the other stand-up show I did that was just straight stand-up. And I thought... Uh, I said I, that was like a comment on the tone that I was going for, and it was quite ranty. But I did have... There was this little old man came up to me after like, about two and a half weeks into the run, and this little rucksack on at the end of the show, he just came up to me and went, what happened to the taxis? <laughs> and I said, "Oh, it's not a show about taxis. It's, a, it's, a, it's you know, things I've said. It's a comment on the on the theme." And he went, "What was you expecting taxis?" And he turned around, and I sort of called after him, and I said, "Are you a taxi driver?" And he turned around and went, "No, I just like taxis." <laughs> <laughs> I felt so bad. Like this guy had been going to the fringe for like thirty years, and he hit the guy. He's like, "Finally, they've done a show for me." <laughs> <laughs> The, the other thing I was going to mention about the, the sort of the genesis of that show, the fact that it was kind of a scramble to make it, a decision to be made, did you make that show or, or not? And we'll, yeah. we'll come back to the, some of the, the content of it. But it's also, it found you at a time in your development, in a time in your career, where you were able to, to make those decisions. Because yeah. you've been, let's talk a little bit about your genesis as a comedian, about how you started out. Yeah, you certainly haven't. I, I haven't been around for ten years, do you? <laughs> have you not? I have I thought... not. I've been around for six. Really? I started doing stand-up in uh, February of 2012. Okay. But I did my first Edinburgh after being a stand-up for five and a half months because nobody told me you weren't supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> but having done... I got away with it because having done a lot of theatre, the show had a beginning, middle and end and a structure and a payoff. But the, the material tying those things together wasn't great but the structure was sound so people came along and went oh that is quite good um because they didn't kind of notice that you know there were no sort of bricks <laughs> filling in the joists if you like yes, but, okay. but because it had a payoff and everything at the end people even go oh yeah so you know the, the, it, it did it did all right that that show i got away with that and the interesting thing about that was when i came back and i was trying to gig that material and i was like this went really well at an arts festival and it was just dying in a club and then I had to kind of completely recalibrate 
Oh, because you weren't able in 20 minutes in a club set. You just couldn't do have it. the chance to no. show off the structure that held it all together. Yeah. Well, let's, so in, in terms of how you brought yourself to comedy, how yeah. did you... How did you bring yourself to theatre first? You were a theatre director. I was, yeah. Um, so I did a lot of theatre at school. Um, and then when I went to university, I went to... I, I originally wanted to be a film director um, and screenwriter. So I thought, I'll, I'll go and do a, an arts degree. So I did a history... I did history and politics. At, um, and then I spent most of my time at university in the university theatre company and failed all my exams because I was doing productions of Arcadia and things like that and uh, going and doing eight born at the French rather than writing my dissertation. So it took me four years to get a tutu. Uh, <laughs> but I did a lot of cracking plays. Um, but I was not being marked on plays because I wasn't clever enough to do a drama degree, <laughs> which, uh, yeah, it seemed like a good idea at the time, but it turned out to be um, quite stupid. But I... Um, but then I formed a theatre company with uh, some friends from the University Theatre Company immediately afterwards, and then we did a couple of Edinburghs and made short films. And, and then I sort of had a weird career of doing plays, uh, short films, writing, like, treatments for crap television programmes. It's very, very odd. It went on for, like, ages, and it culminated... I did a show about this. It culminated in me directing a documentary about the world's most famous ballroom dancer teaching ballroom dancing to inner city school children as a means of social development in Birmingham and whilst at the same time supplementing my income by directing hip-hop music videos for city traders who are finding new and interesting ways to spend their bonuses. Um, <laughs> like as a, like as a, as a corporate kind of training experience? No, no, no. <laughs> as in they were like, by day I work the markets and by night I put do-rag on and I'm like a rapper. And you're like, really? All right, you're paying? OK, I'm there. Um, Whose project was that? Was that a thing you created? No, you were God, like, no, no, no. Here. No, no, no. I met I met some mad people who knew these city bankers who had more money than sense, and they had all self-produced hip hop albums about the financial industry. <laughs> and then, and then they, um, this was all like uh, there was Universal signed one of these guys, and uh, there was like he'd written a, he'd written an autobiography about like working in the city during the day and then going down to like hip hop nights at night. And then the financial crash happened and then like incredibly rich people self-aggrandizing through the medium of rap was very unfashionable. <laughs> Wherever that was going to stop. But yeah, they had a lot of money and they were weird. And I, I thought, okay, I'll go and direct some music videos, learn how to direct music videos by hanging out with these lunatics. So I did that for a bit. And then I did the thing with the ballroom dancing guy and then I ended up having a breakdown in a travel lodge on my 27th birthday. And I, I sat in this room and thought, this isn't what I wanted to do with my life <laughs> at all. Um, so then I, so the relationship I was in broke up soon after that. And I, I took a... Uh, somebody needed a play directing in the, uh, the Edinburgh Fringe. I, I was like, OK, I'll go and do that. So I directed this play and they, they just paid me in room and board and travel and stuff. And I went up there and uh, I went to see Stuart Lee's Jubilee gig the 20th, 25th anniversary he did at Festival Theatre, and there was his book launch. And there was just a bit in his book um, where he was talking about commercial theatre when he was working commercial theatre and how he came back to doing stand-up. And uh, it was, you know, it's been like nine years since I read it, but the quote was something along the lines of having kind of tried to wrangle sort of crews and money and everything to put these productions on, which is what I'd been doing. Uh, he said, you know, with stand-up, it's just you and a microphone and the possibilities are endless. And that really appealed to me. So I, I thought, OK, well, I've been going mad, like writing funding applications for things and trying to put together all this stuff. I thought, well, maybe if I could write something for myself to do, 
and I can go out and perform it. The, the original idea was just to reconnect with what an audience was because I got so far away from the purpose of, of what we're doing, like entertaining people. Um, so I just thought, okay, well, that'd be a really inexpensive way of doing that. So uh, I called a friend of mine from university and said I'd booked two nights at the Hen and Chickens and we formed a double act and they just wrote an hour <laughs> in six weeks and then did it after that. So that was, yeah... In 2010, a, oh, like, a stand-up double act or a sketch? Double no, act? a sketch double act. It was a bit kind of theatre, a bit storytellingy. Um, we had a couple. Of, we sort of did a third each. A third is a double act, and a third sort of solo okay. each. So I did some character stuff, and she did some uh, character storytelling stuff, and then we did some sketches together. Was it good? Uh, it was very promising. Um, no, I think there were bits of it that were that were pretty good, um, but it was it wasn't stand-up. It was very much more kind of theater. it was comedy, but it, it was more th- in the theatre end of it. It wasn't stand up. It took me a while to get to there because I'd done some in the middle of doing all the theatre stuff. I accidentally was in the worst sketch show that's ever been at the end of a fringe in two thousand and nine, which I think is one of those. I didn't really ever do the open mic circuit, but in those in those four weeks, I paid all of my dues. <laughs> <laughs> In um, these guys who I met when I was directing a play the year before, they asked me to help them do some writing on a sketch show that they were working on that they then decided for sort of cost purposes they wanted to be in. And there was three guys who, who couldn't perform. And then they ran- waggled me into doing it as well. So it was me. It was like being in a band with three people who couldn't play instruments. Um, and they had this... Uh, one of them had read David Mamet's True or False, and then were just like, it's just saying the words, and you go, it, it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot more to it than that. But yeah, that was great. So we went, um, because they'd done a quite successful play the year before, we got a slot in the Pleasant Dome at five o'clock and went and stank the place stupid for uh, for a month. It was extraordinary. Um, were you getting audiences? Yeah, because one of the guys was absolutely an absolute demon at flyering. So he could really like get. So we were like we were disappointing up to eighty five people a day at ten pounds a pop. <laughs> like it wasn't okay. Like it was such a bad show. Um, really unacceptably awful. And was that? Did you obviously at the time you had a sense? Did you feel more responsible than the others because you felt like you were maybe? Well, more I told capable? them. I told yeah. I told them that it was going to be a disaster and nobody would listen to me. And I fell out with all of them, but I kept saying it was going to be a disaster. And like the week leading up to it, nobody knew their lines, nobody could perform or land a gag, but they were all watching the cricket, and it was being directed by one of the guy's uncles, who was a nice enough guy, but couldn't direct his way out of a paper bag. And every time that I tried to sort of point out that it was going to be an absolute disaster, everybody said that I was being an arsehole. And then, like, on the second day, we got a, a review in the stage which said it was basically the worst thing ever and the directing was absolutely awful and everything was bad. Uh, and they were like, apart from Garrett Merrick, is quite good. And I was like, <laughs> good. <laughs> we, got, we got a review in the Metro that was so bad... They, uh, the editor called us the night before uh, to tell us that the, the person who'd reviewed the show hated it so much, she'd gone back to the editor and argued for a full page with a half-page half colour photograph. It's the worst. they were it, so desperate to eviscerate the oh show. Oh, my dear, absolutely. It was, um, I couldn't help but giggle reading it because there's something fun about upsetting somebody that much. I mean, if I'd been upset that much... No, genuinely, if I'd been that, uh, that upset by something that trivial, I would have been embarrassed. But she put it in a newspaper. There were wars going on at the time. I mean, have a sense of perspective. It was just like... <laughs> see, really, um, yeah, the... Uh, oh, what was the line from it? What few laughs there are come amid the tumbleweed silence and there's a nasty pong of snideness in the air. And that was fair. <laughs> <laughs> 
So this is Garrett. The first thing to mention is that he is going to be at the Soho Theatre with Sunflower uh, in February 12th to the 16th, February 2019, obviously. Otherwise, I would be refereeing something far too far in the past or future. February the 12th to the 16th, uh, tickets go on sale next week. So go to SohoTheatre.com to find out about that. I really can't recommend his show enough. It's such a fantastic, uh, it's just such a kinetic, shouty, funny performance that then evolves within the show into something very powerful, as uh, as you'll be hearing in this very episode. So um, thanks again to Garrett for this one. If you would like to join the Insiders Club, you won't get any extra material from Garrett because we barreled through this in the hour of the live show. But if you fancy joining up for a donation of £2 a month or more, you do get access to your very own private Insiders Club podcast, which includes such recent gems as Paul Foote explaining his seven different styles of comedy, his seven different jokes, techniques, uh, and Alex Edelman with a sort of hypothetical formula of how to get nominated for an award at the Edinburgh Festival, which is something he didn't go, oh, this is how you do it. I I really teased it out of him, but it was tremendous fun. Um, Loads of stuff on the private podcast, 40 episodes we're up to, with all the extra content from previous and all future episodes of this main podcast, as well as the chance to pitch to interview me about the subject of your choice and comedy critique in which we descend like super nerd vultures upon material sent in by other members of the uh, the Insiders community to pick apart the bones of their material and uh, and hopefully give them feedback, which I curate on various episodes. Uh, also, of course, the redacted live show from this year's Secret Welsh Festival. Plenty more stuff to come. I'm constantly thinking of extra things to put on there. Um, and the price may go up in future because I'm trying to streamline the whole system and I'm spending so long on it, I'm really going to try and make it uh, make it cook. So um, now is an excellent time to join for £2 a month or even more if you fancy. That said... Other things to talk about now. I'll give you a scaffolding update of the post apple, but it'll be mercifully brief. Don't panic. Um, I would like to mention that my own tour has just gone on sale. Uh, the tour end of, which is the, the show I took to Edinburgh this year, which was very pleasingly called A Comedy Masterclass by uh, no less esteemed a publication than The List. Uh, that is on sale now. It's a mini tour because I'm having another baby in the three short weeks and uh, I personally am having the baby. My wife's going to be there to hold my hand, but it's, it's mostly me doing the hard yards. Um, we're, we are taking delivery of, uh, taking receipt uh, of uh, uh, a little girl and I'm very, very excited about it and no little bit scared. But um, what that means is next year, I'm not going to be doing Edinburgh, I think, um, but I'm going to be doing a mini tour in spring of 2019. They're mostly dates within two hours of the south of the UK. Um, and uh, that we're going to release more dates that are going to be an autumn tour in 2019 later. So thank you to the numerous people who've already been in touch to go, what, you're not coming to specifically Huddersfield? <laughs> and so on. Um, I, I'm doing my best to get around about the place as much as I can. But the first half of the tour is in the south if you are anywhere south of Birmingham, then maybe I'm somewhere near you. There's some old favourites in there, Reading, Oxford uh, and uh, and more besides. And there's some newer places like Falmouth. Who's been to Falmouth? Well, I have once for a gig. I'm quite looking forward to going and checking it out. Plymouth, I think, is on the list as well. Um, go to comedianscomedian.com slash tour to find out all about those. You can join the mailing list there as well if you'd like. Email me info at comedianscomedian.com and indeed tweet me at comcompod. And you can look at the Instagram feed, but it's mostly pictures of me being bitten by mosquitoes. So that is all of that for now. Thank you for listening, sharing, retweeting uh, the show and uh, keying it into people's car doors. Don't do that. 
It'd be funny if one person did it to their own car. You're only allowed to key your own car with emblazon it with the legend www.comediascomedian.com. All right, enough faff. Let's return to Mr. Garrett Millerick. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Talk to me then about because I, I part of me is is interested to know knowing what I do knowing what I know about your temperament yeah and also I just want to put a pin in this idea yeah. of you being thought of as an arsehole and kind of being okay with that absolutely fine yeah because there is there is an aspect of your persona yeah. which I've seen develop over the last not ten but however many years yeah, yeah, it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. whereby you have embraced and it's almost like you've found the note to play that is absolutely your stand-up persona. Yeah. I, I want to just put a... Put what that... note is that, Stu? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the beginning of the section and the beginning of the show, Sunflower, where you talk about what a terrible person you are, you don't like enjoyment, you don't like cake, and you don't like holidays. I don't that... say I'm a terrible person. I'm just saying that I don't like any of those things. You added that. <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> but not in a way that anyone here went, that's not what he said. <laughs> so let, but I, I want yeah. to talk about that... that that persona that kind of ownership of the yeah. of the kind of vitriol yeah um i did a there was one night uh, doing a mirth control gig not long after that first edinburgh in 2012 mirth control being uh, an organization with 70 plus gigs up and down the country yeah they're very much a boot camp for they give a lot of stage time to new stand-ups if you are willing to go to timbuktu for nothing which it's great because you can it's one of those things i'd never got caught doing the open mic circuit which i think can become its own trap because, because I was doing a lot of mirth control stuff, and I had a car, and I was able to go. So I'd like go to those gigs, and you'd be in the middle on a on a pro lineup. You know, you go down to Devon, and you'd be there with someone like Zoe Lyons, and there'd be two hundred people there, and you could learn how to do that. Like if you die in front of two hundred people in London, people are going to hear about it. <laughs> you do sure, in Devon, sure. You know, and um, I was very lucky to to do a lot of those gigs and with very good people who were very generous with advice and things when I was starting out. Um, but that, there was one gig where we went in, 
somewhere near Exeter on a Saturday night, and it was the same material that I'd been doing in the Edinburgh show, but I think I'd been doing it in kind of a lackadaisical kind of way and a bit more in the kind of Stuart Lee, Jack D, that kind of, of Dylan Moran, that sort of, like, detached... Um, performance style rather than kind of like gun straight in, in in terms of what I do now and uh, the room was an absolute bear pit like they were drinking like it was the end of the world it was insane the MC couldn't handle it and the the opening act died and the open spot was on before me died and um I was standing there and I was sort of on the balls of my feet and my heart was really racing and this huge like thug of a man at the bar just turned to me and went oh, good luck I was like, okay, and I just went on. I don't know what I did. I just racked it right up to like eleven, and just went fucking mad. Just delivered the material at like it's like something that I had been performing as a folk song, then delivering it as a as a thrash metal song. Okay, and I absolutely got them. I'd not, I think I got them just because they were like scared. <laughs> Like, there's a genuine level of threat. They're like, we're a mob. And I'm like, I'm a one-man mob. And they're like, oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and I came off and I was like, oh, there's something in that. It's sort of grabbing the... That, I think that was the beginning of it. Sort of working, OK, we've, like, lean into it. And that's kind of... If I get hit up about things, I generally get a bit more like that. So it was more bringing, bringing a thing closer to aspects of myself rather than trying to create a character. So I think the first couple yes. of times I was trying to create a stand-up character rather than let one grow out of who you and are. And what, what, what were the things you were trying to create? What did you think you were going to be like? Because I think that's a, that's a hurdle that every comic has to get over at some point where you yeah. go, I think this is what it's supposed to be. I, I'm not sure. I think I can only sort of pin it in terms of um, people who influence me. Like I, I got for a very long time, um, I got compared to Nick Helm. Yeah, um, I, I spoke to Nick about this, and he said for him it was Justin Lee Collins, and it was the same thing. And just one night, a promoter said, "You really like Nick Helm?" And I said, "Which bit? Of my songs or my one-liners?" Yeah, and, and he went, and he went, uh, 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 and I was like, "I can tell you what it is if you're interested. It's uh, it's early '80s Ben Elton with early 2000 Brendan Burns with a with a real dash of Dave Allen running through it. Like, I'm not ashamed <laughs> of what it is, but that's it's not that Nick's brilliant. But there's no nothing, no similarity in our acts other with loud guys with beards. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 it was never a conscious decision to try and create a character. But I think that's... I, trying to do something that's more kind of ironically detached as a, as a defence mechanism when, when you start, I think there's probably an, an element of that. We can say, oh, this isn't me. Um, and then gradually as time goes on, going, OK, and being more comfortable with bringing it closer to... Probably just, you know, earning money out of the worst aspects of your personality. <laughs> and, what are, and for you, what are they? What are those worst aspects of your personality? Oh, I've got... I've, I've, Can you, I've, sorry. I've got absolutely uh, no patience whatsoever with anything, and uh, I have a complete inability to take a reasonable response to anything, good or bad. Like, like that, that gin and tonic story is, is true, uh, the one that was in the show, and um, Pierre and I were sitting there having this conversation... And I told him that gin and tonic story, and it did happen. But when I told him it was August 2005, Pierre just absolutely couldn't stop laughing. And he was like, he was like what must it be like to live in your head? And then for the, ne- for, the next, um, for, for the next couple of weeks in Australia, every time we were having a nice time, um, Pierre or Ahishahi would say, stab him in the hand with a fork so he can form memories. <laughs> <laughs> But one of the joys of stand-up, and particularly of your stand-up, is that ability to weaponize one's negative traits. Yeah. Um, 
Well, it's, it, it, I think it's that, that thing that everybody can be that unreasonable. And I think it's, I, can, I can be super unreasonable for other people. <laughs> like, it's not all right to take that as a reaction to uh, a, a minor delay on a, on a 12-hour flight to watching a James Bond film. But I didn't enjoy the James Bond film because of all of that. <laughs> have to, yeah. You know, so I can come and like share that with people. There's a there's a line in um, uh, Charlie Brooker's website, TV Go Home, from yeah. back in the day when he was doing that, where he describes the band Limp Biscuit as a bunch of thirty year old Americans throwing a tantrum on your behalf. Yeah, and it, there is some <laughs> element of stand up whereby you get to do something, you get to live an experience on behalf of the audience. Yeah, I don't, and yeah, because I don't have a proper job. And I mean, that's one of the great things about stand up. I can be unreasonable or in a bad mood for a lot longer than perhaps I would have to if I had to spend time with people during the day, which I don't. <laughs> so when you say those, in terms of those influences, when you mm. say um, uh, it was, so it was Dave Allen, Brendan Burns and... Ben Elton. Ben Elton. So Ben Elton, uh, Very Live 88, was the first stand-up I ever heard. Uh, my mum bought it for me because I was a big Blackadder fan. My mum bought it for me for one Christmas and I just had a single cassette, so whatever that was, like... Uh, 40 minute edit of his 88 tour show and I just wore that thing down to the to the plastic on the tape and then from then bought a lot more Ben Elton stuff got really into Ben Elton actually the first play I first play I ever directed was a Ben Elton play from I'm just a huge huge Ben Elton fan I think it's brilliant but that was uh, that was a real I didn't know anything about stand-up as an art form really um and then my parents were really into Dave Allen so I got introduced to that quite early on and then out there Eddie Izzard was very very big when I was at school. Um, so I think, and then I, I used to go to. There was a guy uh, who I lived with in the first year of university called Philip Goodeve Docker, who uh, unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago doing a, a, a charity walk across the across the Arctic. But I lived with him at university, and his brother worked for Jonglers. So this is back in two thousand two, and uh, could get us free tickets on a Thursday night. So he started on Thursday nights, getting us a table at Jonglers for free. And then more people came, and then more people came. And over a year, because it built up, there were like 30 of us going to Jonglers every Thursday. And I remember the first time I went, um, I think Marcus Brigstock was closing. I remember that. I just thought he was absolutely fantastic. But that we just went to Jonglers every Thursday. And then eventually Jonglers came to him and went, you can't have 30 free tickets every Thursday. <laughs> um, and then Phil said, I will form a comedy society. And then he asked me to be a part of the comedy society, and I said, no. <laughs> and then... Um, but I did, um, well, he passed away. Adam Bloom did a benefit for him at the comedy store. And I got to, that was the first time I played the comedy store. Because somebody from university called Adam and said, oh, there's somebody on the circuit now. And I was very new, but I had done the gong. I'd done the gong and passed the gong. And they said it would be cool if that part of Phil's sort of career when he started would be represented in that way. So Adam called me up and asked me to do it. And I was like, yeah, okay. And then I went along and I was on a bill with Jason Manford, Matt Lucas, Adam MCing, and it was... I was just open, doing open mics at the time. <laughs> they go out, and that was yeah, that was that was phenomenal. It was really good. How did you go on the night? Uh, great, really good. But it was one of those. Um, I was only five minutes, and I remember standing in the dressing room and I was absolutely shitting myself. And um, I said, "You got any advice?" And, and Jared Christmas looks at me and yeah, this is the best stage in the world for performing comedy on. So you walk out there, everybody in the room is going to assume you have a right to be there, so just act like you do. And then uh, Matt Lucas put a flat cap on and went, I'm going to have to watch you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah it, was, it was, yeah, it was really nice. Um, but that, then I went back to perform the comedy store and I thought it was going to be like that again, and it wasn't. 
And then something about a year later, I was talking to Adam, and he said, "No, in, in my entire career, I've only had a couple of nights like that, and that was one of them." He was like, "There was an energy in that room for Phil that night, um, which is kind of cool." So, talk to me about your writing process. How you started off when you were first doing the open mic circuit? Mm-hmm. Was it as rant based as it is now? And it was story based. It... So it started. It all started uh, story based stuff. So very kind of long, uh, long story stuff. Because that's why I was, I'm a lot more comfortable in long form because of uh, theatre and things than I was in short form. So I actually, in like the first year, I'd write kind of long, overarching stories. So I think my first show was kind of three stories. That's that, really unusual, isn't it, for a newer act? Yeah, I suppose so. But you've got to kind of you've got to play the hand you dealt, or, you know, to your strengths. Whatever. Because I'd done theatre, I was far more comfortable with long form stuff than I was with short form stuff and it took me it took me ages to get to that point of having uh word economy and what I was doing and getting to a punchline and chewing faff out of it I would see um when I couldn't get it to work after that show that the material I was I was gigging um I went to see Jill Edwards do a session one recommended I would go down and see her as a writing coach and for two hours she absolutely ripped me to bits um, but she went through and she, she was just basically looking at these long-form things I was doing. She was like, you're a great performer, I can't teach you to be very comfortable on stage. But what you're doing here is you have an idea, you go bang, and you get a laugh off that, and then you run it into the floor until there's no more laughter, and then you have another little, and then you run it into the floor. And she was like, you need to go bang and up, and bang and up. And she just, just absolutely ripped me to bits uh, for two hours. At the end of it, she said to me, look, I think you do want to do this as a, as a career. And I said, yeah, I do. And she said, okay, i ask you a question. If you want to be in 10 years' time standing in a motorway service station, looking at yourself in a mirror, having just done a nine-hour round trip to talk to people about internet dating. Is that what you want to do with your life? And I was like, no. And she was like, go away and work harder. But yeah, then it got... So So then I was working very much on, on doing shorter sets and I bombed out of a couple of competitions because I just couldn't do a five. And then I sat down and I watched a lot of fives on YouTube and was like, okay. And I sat down and set myself this challenge of writing... Applying f- your analytical yeah. theatre... Th- like as a director, going, okay, what's that? Bang, bang, bang. Okay, how does that work? And, okay. Um, and, and do you remember now what sort of things were you thinking? Like, to, if people are listening to this who are... Uh, in the process of writing or working Yeah, on the Competition five, 5 that I did that was fairly bulletproof. Um, I never won anything. I came second in, in most of the competitions. And my friend said to me, I'm really glad you didn't win anything. I said, oh, thanks, mate. And he was like, there's nothing about your stage persona that sits comfortably with winner. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it was like second is perfect. <laughs> it's just because then you could get some glory, but still be angry. Yeah, yeah. I had the rosettes on the poster the next year. It was like second, second, second. It's consistently the second best new comedian in Britain. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I did a set. Uh, it was basically lots of people were doing things about um, teenagers at the time. So I flipped that on his head, and I just came out to work out in a five minute set. You to come out at two hundred miles an hour and and just hit it. So we opened this statement. Um, I think old people should fuck off. Just come on and go, right, bang, from there. And I go, okay, that is, so... Sorry, for the benefit of the listener, the average age of this room is about 25? Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, But just, just breaking... Just breaking down the uh, the thing that people were doing at the time with teenagers and, and things and saying, oh, you know, youth of today and all this stuff. Just doing a reverse on that, but starting with an incredibly uh, unnecessarily harsh statement, quite a short statement, going, 
bang. And you go, I've got five minutes to convince you. <laughs> okay. And just okay. knocking it down for that. So, so like a mini essay, like there's my thesis. I'm going to chase it to a conclusion. And I've got like four points to make. So you go, okay, old people can fuck off. Like why? You go, okay, could they, uh, we have to stand up for them on trains, but they were around when they were fucking the train network. It's their fault. <laughs> so stand up. Like, this is, fuck you. You stand up, we'll sit down. And uh, things like, oh, you have to be, when I was a kid, you know, you'd have to respect old people just because they'd won the Second World War. And you go, okay, well, that's a the thing. They're all dead. <laughs> so, like, what did this lot do? They won the Cold War. How did they do it? They ate a lot of McDonald's and bought shit. Like, that's not the same thing. So you can just, you know, and just take these things okay. and then flip them around. And... Um, and then I, I sort of took a thing of looking at the future that was promised in the 1960s uh, and just choosing a couple of things like that, like Star Trek. Everyone's got a mobile phone in Star Trek, but nobody in Star Trek gets PPI calls. They didn't, like, you know, <laughs> just taking it through that. Uh, and then, so, yeah, it was literally kind of bold statement, delivered at 200 miles an hour. And then justification, 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 conclusion has to fit in five minutes. So you have to go like, and, and just come out and be completely unreasonable. But everybody agree with you by the end. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that, like, as a basic premise, the idea that you're trying to win an argument. Yeah. And, like, Ed Burns' stand-up is very much like that. A lot of Ed Burns' stand-up is yeah. about him retrospectively winning an argument that he lost in a pub several years ago. Yeah. And it does, it, it kind of lends itself that form to the bombast of your performance. Yes. Um, but that thing for a five, then you come out and you go, I remember then someone seeing it in a 20 when I do the old people thing, that five at the beginning of a 20, and somebody saying to me, well, that's a beginner's set, you need to move away from that. It's like, because you come out at 200 miles an hour and you go, I've got to prove myself. And they're like, you need to get to a point where you prove yourself with how you walk to the mic stand. Yeah. And... You'll find in longer sets, if you start at 200 miles an hour, there is nowhere for you to go, which is fine in five minutes because you come out, you kick it up in the air, and then you're running. But in a 20, you want to do interesting things and go places, so you, you can't start at 200 miles an hour. So that was an interesting lesson to learn, the difference between uh, doing a five-minute and then doing a 20. And um, how, much, how much control over what you do do you feel that you have? How much are you making decisions and sticking to them, and like over long, long term? And how much are you reacting to what you're given? Do you know what I mean? Like, I find sometimes in my own stand-up, I kind of make a decision, I'm going to try and do this sort of thing. Yeah. Early days, certainly. And yeah. then I'd get on stage and go, well, that plan's gone out the window. I'll just dive in here. Yeah, well, I find when I write, I write pages and pages of things that I think are brilliant, and then I'll have a throwaway line about something in the middle, and it's always the line that turns into the routine. Because I'll go out and realise I just need to warm the brain up to write all this crud. Yeah. And then when I take it on stage, the audience go, no, no, no. And you've got like got this little scrap of a thing and they go, that. And you're like, okay, I have to try and work that out like in front of you. That's sort of how I do that. And what, what aspect of stand-up do you find most pleasurable, most satisfying? None of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, really, I really like performing. Uh, I, do, I, I, I like working. There's that, that excitement that you get off when a new bit works when you that bit when an audience will tell you that a throwaway idea or a, a fraction of a sentence or this little this, a thing that you didn't even view as a slip road is going to lead you into this fucking great uh expansive things you can develop that's really exciting and there's that's that feeling when you get that that's really great and then that the work then you have to do 
for weeks and weeks and weeks to try and get that piece of material up to firing anything like it was on that first night when the adrenaline and the excitement just gave it that that magic. Yeah. Um, that bit, I really like that bit. You like the sorry the discovery or on, on the, stage the work on the discovery? No, no, the 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 discovery on stage. Yeah. Uh, and do you find the work on the discovery a pain? Not a pain, but it's I it's, do. it's very difficult. <laughs> it's um, yeah, it's very challenging. And that bit, you get to those points where you go, "Will this ever work again?" Um, but yeah, I, I like that bit. I like that bit. Uh, we go out and walk the dog with a dictaphone in, and just listening over and over and over to inf- differences and in inflections in your in your vocal or what the what the audience are doing and, and what the cadence of things are and trying to work that down forensically so it's kind of bulletproof. I, I do like that bit, but I don't find it as exciting as finding the new bit. And what aspects of your your real self are in your persona? We've talked about that kind of that energy. Is yeah. there is there something Well no there... I'm very lazy off stage. <laughs> <laughs> but is there is there something about anger? Yeah. Um I think very much when I was younger, and certainly before I did uh, stand-up, I was very, very, very angry. Very angry all the time. Uh, everything. Like, you know, the time of day. Um, but for why? Do you have a I've sense absolutely of... no idea. I, I think it's uh, Celtic blood, Catholic upbringing, the weather, you know. <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, I'm just quite a natural malcontent. Um, and is that, like, were your parents like that? I know I've heard, you know, the material that you've done about your dad and his kind of bluntness. I'm very much, yeah, I'm kind of a, uh, <laughs> that portrayal of my dad is not necessarily fair. <laughs> There's elements of the mobile thing, uh, phone thing is absolutely true. Um, and yeah, he was a computer programmer uh, and has no interest whatsoever in computers, <laughs> which which I understand. Um, but yeah, I, I guess, yeah, I come from quite a, a long line of quite fiery people. I'm not particularly, um, I'm much more sanguine these days because I get to go on stage for 20 minutes a night and be, I have this incredible outlet. Very early on, I had a routine about uh, British gas because I was being harassed by uh, by British gas for uh, £2,500 for a, for a gas bill for a flat that, um, one, I'd never lived in, and two, I knew for a fact didn't exist because I had years before lived in flat two in a building of three flats, and they were chasing me for two and a half grand in, in unpaid uh, bills for flat six in, in a building that had three flats. And um, I showed up to a new material night with this, with this letter, and I was saying, I wish I was so tired, I can't remember who it was, but I just said what had happened about this ridiculous argument I was having with British Gas and how difficult it was, and I hadn't slept, and so I hadn't written any material. And um, he just started giggling and went go out and tell them what you just told me. And went, it's, not, it's not a joke. He went, go out and tell them. And I started doing it and they started laughing and I'm like standing on stage holding this letter up going, fuck British gas. And people are going, Wah! and I'm, I'm like, I'm like, this is great. Any minor irritation I have with any form of bureaucracy, shop, politics and everything, I just come on and go, fuck this. And I go, yeah. It's like, I'm done now. And, and I don't care it, anymore. Does it, well, that's it. Does it kind of bleed out that sort of poison? Does it, does yeah, it, oh, yeah, it has a, yeah. a genuine therapeutic effect? Yeah, it's quite spiteful, really, because basically what I'm going is, you have that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the one thing with that that British gas thing worked really well for about um, about six weeks, and one day it stopped working. It was like a tap being turned off. And I was like, why isn't this working? And uh, a comic said to me, um, is it fixed? I said, yeah, yeah, I've got it fixed. The bailiff's no longer coming out. He went, the audience can smell it off you. 
And he went, ah, they can tell you're yeah, yeah. contriving said, the anger. Yeah, yeah. He said when, when, it was, when it was original and it was genuine, you were a desperate person brandishing a letter from a bailiff for a thing, and that's really funny. But someone pretending to be stressed about something is not funny. So talk to me about that in the, in the paradigm of yeah. theatre, where, you know, you hmm. would, if not performing it yourself, you would kind of direct people to experience and kind of undergo those real emotions. Because I, I feel like I know exactly what you mean. I've done yeah. bits that don't feel true anymore. But is there but stand an up, argument? Stand-up's that... different to theatre because it's not this... Um, it's like when you see a, a television... There's something... It's a particular kind of Venn diagram of performance, stand-up, and it's it's really particular. I'm not saying it's better than anything, but it, in order for it to function as stand-up, it's that meeting between uh, writing and person and audience, and it's this it's this big Venn diagram that's, that's operating there, and it doesn't exist in of itself. So if you watch uh, films or television programmes, and there have been a few recently, where, like, I'm dying up here, uh, is uh, the thing about the comedy store in the 70s. It's great, and it's really, it functions as a, as a television series brilliantly. It's about stand-up. Where it falls down is doing stand-up sections, because the stand-up sections are written by writers who are trying to write bits of stand-up for actors to perform. And whatever's missing in there, it just goes, not stand-up, not functioning. It just, as it just, it just it's, takes you out of it. And I don't know, I don't know what that is. So it's different, it's different to theatre. It's not like... Uh, uh, it's not like acting. It's not like learning a script and playing a part because no. there has to be something. And I think if you do that, and you can see people who do that, uh, and particularly early on, we do that thing and we go, okay, this is the bit where I move the mic stand, and this is when I go like that, and and you do that, and it's uh, it's a facsimile of stand up, but it's not stand up. Stand up's a very, it has to be a fluid thing in in. With three or four different things operating, which is different to acting. Acting can be in isolation. That's why you can kind of successfully put it on film in a way that you can't with stand up. So, if someone listening to this is a stand up who is registering that, like they're recognizing that this, what we're talking about, yeah, about a bit they're doing, yeah. Well, it how depends you... how it depends how early on you're you're doing it. Um, so, like, don't learn your lines. Learn the sense of your lines. And then the, the that's a really good tip. That's definitely a conclusion I've come to, but yeah, and wish someone had told me earlier. Yeah, like you'll know, you'll, 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 yeah, you'll feel out how to land a punchline, and it'll be, it'll be different in terms of what gears, what levers you have to pull in different rooms. Like the cadence might be slightly different in some of the jokes I did in this room this evening to if they would have been if we'd done it in the theatre in a different space. But the truth of the line would be the same, but you've just got to kind of feel out the room while you're doing it and you kind of, you're, you're piloting it as you go. Whereas a performance you can, and in many situations you have to replicate on the button and you can't do that with stand-up and when you do it ceases to be stand-up and it starts to be a facsimile. Even one-liners, even if the words are exactly the same, there is something about the performance. It's that kind of leading and following the audience at the same time. Yes, yeah, I think so. So it's different in, in yeah, in that regard. Which is you one of those things I do, like people say to me, you're an actor, and I, I'm not, and I, 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 don't, I don't do that. And there are some people who are brilliant at doing it, but I sort of resist the thing of any actors can be stand-up and any stand-ups can be actors. And they're sort of, they, are, they are different things. And I've spent a long time directing incredibly talented actors uh, and having a real appreciation for that art form enough that I, I view it as being a different thing and some people can do both but it doesn't follow you know, I find that sort of a weird thing like I'm going to be a stand-up and then I'm going to I'm going to act in things you know you're going to do any acting training in the middle of that <laughs> it's, going, it's yeah like you'll yeah you'll have a bit of stagecraft and stuff but they are those are those are two massively different 
skill sets. So coming back to the, the reality and the reality of your life and that which you share on stage, in, particularly in Sunflower, some yeah. incredibly kind of heart-wrenching... Uh, okay, well, that's, a good, exa- that's that. a good example of that. So the three pieces of, of Sunflower in the States that I wrote them, how I was feeling about the not liking cake, not liking holidays, and that kind of thing about being quite a cantankerous person. Mm. That was a mental state that I was in, an emotional state that was in near the beginning of the year. And then in the middle section, when we're talking about the pregnancy and my feelings about how I was going to deal with being a father, that's a different emotional state. And then taking myself back to how we were when we were in the hospital. And the main point of the show was that it was humour that was pulling us through that situation. Those were three different states in the show that in addition to what I was just saying there about stand-up being fluent and everything, I had to kind of find a way to honestly be in those places at those three stages in the show or it would not ring true, if you like. So you had to... That was one of the things I kind of wanted. Even if you knew what the story was, I did want it to be something of a surprise when the when the incident hijacks the show, because I wanted you to be invested in where I was at that time. Yeah. Uh, so that. So was... you're doing what we're expecting to hear a show about becoming a dad. Yeah. Because it's material about worries about becoming a dad. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so that was a challenge with this show to try and work out to balance those things of going... I mean, Rohan Akira said to me when I started working the show, he was like, well, it's going to take everything that you've learned being a stand-up and it's going to take everything that you learned doing theatre and film to pull this off. Like, every single... And I think that was true in the end. Um, it was, yeah, that really was a... That was a, a culmination of sort of 15 years' work, that show. And um, and you you actually say in the show one of the elements... Like, there is one single element of your home life your relationship with your wife that she won't allow you to talk about on stage <laughs> yeah. i think that's really that's really fascinating given how kind yeah, of yeah. uh heart on your sleeve the show is yeah um it was our uh, it was our wedding so i I'd, I'd written some i did actually have some material before i uh before i was married material very early on about i had a i had a failed engagement a couple of years ago, so I had some really good stuff about weddings and my dis and my dislike. <laughs> Sorry, of that's them. just such a such a comedian thing to say. I had a failed engagement, yeah. So I had some really good stuff about weddings, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, just going, you know, just, that was very painful at the time. Let's just chuck it up there. Um, but yeah, it was about how um, it, was, it was around the time that they were legalizing gay marriage, and uh, and just saying about that that. When when I broke up with my fiance, I had to come up to my family as an asshole and go, "There isn't a parade for that." <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I had this stuff, and then um, I there was there were several things that were kind of funny about our wedding and all, all weddings really. And I started writing some material about that, and I was running it past Sarah, and Sarah's is my first audience for things, and she's she's usually very good at giving feedback and things. And she just stared at me as I was running through the stuff, and then just said, "Not our wedding day." I said, what? She said, not our wedding day. Every aspect of our lives gets mine for the entertainment of strangers. Just leave me one fucking day. And I was like, fair enough. That's, <laughs> that's, uh, that, that is fair enough. I mean, so for, for ages, like when we, when we first went out, um, Sarah said that she didn't want to end up in any of my stand-up because the, the first show that she saw of mine was all about my ex. Um... <laughs> So, uh, not really, and not really a sort of a truthful version of my ex, more sort of a cartoon character uh, version of my ex. But um, 
That's kind of worse, isn't it? I don't want to end up being lied about on yeah, stage yeah, it's, to make me yeah, look worse yeah. for the point of punching up a joke. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I didn't for a very long time. So when I met her, I was living with uh, two friends of mine. And then for a very long time through our relationship, I was still my, my onstage persona was still living with these two guys. And then one day she was like, uh, I think a friend of hers had said to her, why does he pretend to be single on stage and she brought that to me and I was like because you asked me to and she was like okay maybe you can now mention that I exist <laughs> <laughs> so I was like fine so then for ages I had this really weird line in my material pre-permission to talk about that and post-permission to talk about that which led to once at, um, I had this stuff that had been punched that I'd done for military gigs and things and so I had a lot of stuff in the kind of single persona that was punched up and ready to do in front of quite rough crowds um, so I was doing Late and Live after I got married in, in 2016 in Edinburgh. And um, somebody saw me in the dressing room take my wedding ring off and put it in my wallet. And they were like, ugh. And I was like, oh, no, there's, I can't, I haven't got time to, oh, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's do, just briefly, just to, we'll, we must wrap up shortly. But... Um, you mentioned in, in your set as well that experience of doing military gigs. I've not done those gigs before. I understand that they are quite unusual. Yeah. What's your kind of guide to how to survive those kind of shows? Well, um... They're, they're decompression shows, right? Yeah, I've done yeah, a variety of... Uh, a variety of them over, over a couple of years. And um, they're great because, you know, you can you go out to Cyprus and there's... the. It's very sunny and the broadband is absolutely woeful, so you can get quite a lot of work done. Um, and then go out and you do these gigs in the evening. And actually, they're quite varied. So if you have, you know, you'll have troops coming in who've just straight off a plane and you'll be emceeing a gig and they'll be like, oh, they've been in transport for 30 hours. You're like, okay, well, no crowd work then. And then you'll have them there like an hour from going home and they're all sort of demob happy and like, crackers. Uh, but they can be, yeah, they'd be very varied, very interesting. It's actually quite, um, regardless of it being a military thing it's actually quite a privilege to be trusted with someone's first night out in six months when they've just been through hell it's quite a thing to like okay i get to do that that's quite a nice thing and they are very they're very challenging i mean the worst gig i've ever had in my life was a military gig i'll uh, set the scene um walk in there are uh, a thousand un peacekeeping troops watching an arsenal game in the mess and the comedy is set up in another room Myself and Math Brown and uh, Ben Heathcote, who's the musician on the on the tour, we all said, "Well, we're, we're not in a hurry," so we went backstage in the dressing room and uh, cracked a couple of cans of beer, and we're sat in there having a chat. And this guy comes in and goes, uh, "We're all set down and ready for the comedy now, lads." We said, um, "What's uh, what's happened to the Arsenal game?" He goes, "The RQSM's gone in, turned the television off, and ordered them into the comedy." Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> I, I said, "I said okay, it gets worse." Um, <laughs> And then the guy said, um, the guy said, uh, uh, oh, yeah, just so you know, uh, when we first stationed out here, a couple of the lads got themselves into, uh, and uh, these UN details are known for being spectacularly boring. And they've been on one for like six months, and they were all uh, trapped away from their families and stuff, and there's quite sort of boring detail. He says, oh, a couple of lads got themselves into trouble when we first stationed out here with our booze, so we've been on, uh, we're on a booze band now for the last six months, but we have lifted it tonight. And I said, okay. and normally they get like tokens, they can do four drinks. And I said, is there any cap on it? He goes, no, there's no cap tonight, it's open by three uh, beers, wine, spirits. And I was like, all right. And then I went out, and it was awful. I mean, it was really unbelievably awful. And uh, But the sun came up the next day, and you're like, oh, well, it'll never be as bad as that. And then I flew home, and I was opening Watford... Uh, 
jongler's highlight, whatever it was. And the guy came up and was just like, we've got six stag dudes in tonight. I was like, are they armed? <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll be fine then. And it's quite a good thing to go and do because you go, yeah, it's never going to be worse than that. And also, when it's really, really bad, there's an experience of something being really bad, you go, oh, it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, the next day, like, there will be another gig that will be nice. It's fine, you know. Um, but I did, yeah, I did. I'd, I haven't done that many of them, but I've done... Because it would sort of... By the time I was professional, the, that whole kind of era had stopped and we were just on the wind-down of them, so... Um, I've done a few of them over a few years. But I, I, I generally subscribe to that thing as you should do as many different types of gigs to as many different people as possible. Um... So, yeah, chuck that in. Also, then, you know, I performed to 2,000 Madness fans at Butlins. That also was not expected. Did someone woo that? <laughs> How unexpected in the barn theatre. <laughs> <laughs> and and to, to wrap up, yep. what, what do you want from comedy? What's your ultimate, what's your goal within it? Because I think most people, they're... I won't be prescriptive. Mm. What do you want from comedy and how has it changed? How has, that, how has your goal changed, if it has? Well, I started... As I say, when I got into comedy, all I wanted was to reconnect with uh, an audience. So when the first time I went out and I did that first character gig and people laughed, I was like, oh, okay, if I can do this, I won't go mad and I won't be depressed because I'd been writing all these things and, and trying to get them made and getting some things made and things failing and stuff. And it was driving me mad. And I think it's possible because you just got further and further and further away from an audience. So if I have a mechanism where I can go... Because what we like, stand-up, theatre, film, music, they're all just different toolkits for entertaining people. And I think the, the more that you can get in the room with the people that you're supposed to be entertaining and, and, and remember what that is, that's important. So that was... That was the only goal I had when, when I started, and, uh, and then it kind of went from there. But, you know, like now I've got... A, I'm relatively ambitious. I'd like to do more... Th- I'd like to be able to kind of tour under my own name and things, And but, you know, I, I pay my mortgage telling jokes. I'm married, I'm happy, I've got a nice little life, and, uh, yeah, I've, there are other things I want to do within stand-up, but not very far away from the track of... Not like, oh, I'd, I'd like to, you know, be Ricky Gervais or something like that. I don't, I don't think I would. <laughs> it looks stressful. Um, but, yeah, just uh, I'd like to be able to play slightly bigger venues. Uh, I'd like to be able to tour under my own name, uh, do a bit of telly, get a new kitchen. We need some carpets in the living room, a bit more money. <laughs> be fine. But, like, beyond that, I haven't got any sort of... Uh, because it's, it's, it's good, isn't it? <laughs> Just even on, basically, you have to kind of look at it and go, it's quite a nice way to, to live your life. And there's not a... I remember for ages when I, when I went around with um, doing the theatre stuff and the film stuff and things, it used to drive me mad, this kind of, like, ambition. And I think I got that out of my system because not, that didn't work. None of that worked. And I ended up very angry and frustrated. And uh, that was quite a good lesson in... Uh, I worked out fairly early on comedy that nothing's ever going to be okay, but as long as you're okay with everything not being okay, you can be... <laughs> you know, that that works. Are you happy? Uh, no. Um, I could have been a professional disaster if I was. <laughs> That's it's really my stick, you know. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Mr Garrett Millerick. Thank you very much. Thank you.
So that was Garrett. I really enjoyed talking to him. Thank you to the Barn Theatre for having us. Thanks for being so patient. Those of you who weren't expecting a comedy night or weren't expecting the Inverted Commas comedy night to become a sort of interesting night regarding comedy rather than uh, a second half full of jokes. But thank you very much for having us and thanks for coming along. Uh, do remember, Garrett Millerick's show Sunflower is going to the Soho Theatre from the 12th to the 16th of February and my own show is currently on tour. You can find out about his from SohoTheatre.com and you can find out about mine from ComediansComedian.com slash tour. Thank you, as ever, to Nathan Wood for editing the show, to podcast consultant Peter Dobbing uh, and to Rob Smouten for the music and a little shout-out to Dan Melrose for the music that entertained you for the first 250-something episodes. Bless you, Dan. Thanks for the album. Dan's album uh, is available somewhere. It's beautiful guitar music. Uh, I think it's called Stand in Front of My Car. It may be called Get Out from In Front of My Car. I think it's called Step or Step or Stand in Front of My Car. His name is Dan Melrose and it's almost certainly available on Bandcamp. Um, I'm, I've given you pathetic details there, but you can Google it or have a look on Bandcamp and I'll mention it again and tweet it and stuff like that because Dan's... Uh, I don't use the word lightly. I'm not Stephen Fry, but he is a poppet. <laughs> so uh, that is all of that. I'm going to post Amble at you in just a moment, but I think that's it for now. Thanks for your correspondence. I'm going to deal with a piece of listener mail uh, from someone who asked about how to progress from your first five-minute set when there are no gigs around you. Um, so we'll deal with that now. Well, in just a moment, after the horse noise. But this, for now, concludes the podcast. <laughs> so, a couple of bits of... Quasi business, quizness. Um, I'm going uh, to perform at the Bearcat tonight in Twickenham, which is a, a club that I really love playing at, and I've I've uh, not had it in the diary for ages. I think it was in a while ago, and I had to pull possibly for some baby related reason. But uh, I'm back, and I can't wait. The lineup spectacular. I'm on last, and it's one of those kind of oh god, I've got to follow some really really good people. Um, Christian Riley tonight. I think Dave Fulton's on the bill. It's a big. It's one of those kind of every. One's a headliner, and I'm the one that goes on last. So I'm, uh, I'm very much looking forward to that. And um, I'm sat in my car here in Twickenham, uh, re-recording these blurbs because the first ones were absolutely rubbish. They were just a just another rant about scaffolders. I'm happy to point out, in case it wasn't clear from the first scaffolding rant, that the scaffolding attached to my own place. Uh, is now gone, but our neighbour had some scaffolding put up, which is what prompted the rant, and uh, I saw him and spoke to a man much, let's let's say, much much more bearded than myself, much more masculine, a little bit older, um, and uh, he is our next-door neighbour. He had one level of scaffolding put on his window, which is kind of nuts, because you'd imagine... I mean, just use a ladder. But I couldn't help from burbling to this person who is much more experienced in life than I, much more manly, much more knowledgeable about building work, I'm sure. I couldn't help from going, I see you've got some scaffolding, just make sure that they you don't pay them until they've taken it down. OK, bye, bye, bye. Um, and uh, he, he dealt with that charmingly and very politely. But I see now, that or I saw yesterday, that his, his scaffolding has gone. So either he did do that and held the cash over them as a means of like get your fucking get the stuff out of here or he uh, uh he's just just so kind of musky that he was able to uh, to get them to bin it off so um 
uh, it's not entirely the post-amble for today. I wanted to deal with an email that I got from a listener who, uh, who shall remain nameless because uh, I don't like... To- I don't like to assume it's fine, particularly if people are asking for help. You don't like to go, well, Joe Bloggs doesn't know what he's doing, however implicitly. But a listener wrote to me to say, in as many words, I don't have it in front of me now, but they basically said, I'm doing fives, I've been going a year and a half, I'm really enjoying it, I've been trying lots of different permutations of me and my voice and what my act is, I haven't settled on the thing yet, and I'm not getting enough stage time, and I live somewhere where it's a 50 quid round trip to meet a cost to get a five-minute unpaid set. And and I think a lot of people must be in versions of, of that situation. And I asked on the Comedians Comedian podcast group, which you too can join, um, to try and get some uh, some kindred spirits from the, the ComCom pod community to offer their thoughts. Now, uh, I can't seem to find the post at the moment, but the upshot was almost every single person said, start your own gig. And there was some really helpful uh, suggestions in there. So a person who sent me the email, please join the Facebook group. I will, uh, I mean, I add everyone if they answer the uh, proving you're not a spammer questions. Um, so join in there and uh, have a look. I will find that post. But basically almost everyone said, start your own gig, start your own gig, start your own gig. It's a great way to get stage time to find out how people, you know, people will start asking you for a gig and you can find out how to and how not to approach people for a gig. Also, you might find that someone else has started their gig and you can do reciprocal swapsy stage time with them. Plus, you can get pros to do your own show and um, and you can learn from them. And it basically, I think, even if you're on, I don't know where this listener was writing from, even if you're on the Isle of Skye, Turn that into a positive, you know, sky comedy, do it. Um, But, you know, you can find, I'm sure, if you live where you live, there must be some other people there. And even if it's once a month, you could do that. Now, I don't give that suggestion lightly. I have never run my own regular gig, and it sounds like an effing nightmare uh, administration-wise, but it's also a nightmare driving up down the country. So maybe you could spend the time you'd have spent being bored in service stations and on motorways or in train stations... um, convert that time into administrating your own gig and I hope that works out that was our suggestion just while I'm on the subject of the Facebook group just to let you know the sorts of things that are in there at the moment um, Ben van der Velde is advertising he's uh, offering a comparing an improv for stand-up workshop in Banbury uh, someone is uh, gently chiding Ramesh Ranganathan for mentioning being vegan Gary Delaney's posted uh, a very young him in the new comedy awards final in 2002 um, Simon Munnery's on tour. Someone's talking about that. I've offered if I get 50 shares of my tour announcement on Facebook to upload a video of me singing the theme to Moana. Um, and Elise Bramich is making a foray into the world of directing stand-up shows. She's posted in there to uh, hawk her wares as a stand-up director. And I'm saying, this is a recent post from me, fucking fucking hell, go and see Sam Campbell at Soho if you're in or near London. God, it was good. So that's the sort of, ch- people are sort of posting that community is thriving very nicely. I'm very proud of the, uh, the ComCom Facebook group. So if you're not already a member, please sign up. Thanks for your lovely comments and feedback regarding the Alice Fraser episode. Remember, you can go to alicecomedyfraser.com to get hold of the trilogy. Her downloads, I believe they're all available free. It's three hours, her first three hours of stand-up, and um, it's a really powerful experience. So please get on board that. Thanks to all of you that enjoyed that show and told everyone about it. 
And I promise you I will do the No Such Thing as a Fish special live episode from the King's Place London Podcast Festival. I'll get that up and running as soon as I can, but the tech setup was so good there that I've just got mic tracks coming out of my ears. Or coming in. Nathan's got them coming out of his ears, and it's just taking a little while to put that one together. Hopefully it will be with you next week. And um, that's that. I think, I think that's all. I've, there's not much else going on in my life. I'm just kind of... I've got one more week of gigs... And then not much else, apart from this one big thing. I've got a I've got a week of shows coming up, culminating in a trip to the Aberystwyth Comedy Festival, the first year of uh, Aberfest, as I'm sure everyone's calling it, uh, where I'm doing a kids' hour of stand-up as well as my tour show end of. And um, the kids' hour of stand-up is, I would say, not 100% written at this stage, but I think it'll be lots of fun. So if you're anywhere near Aberystwyth, do come to that. But it's basically an incredibly full-on week. That morning I'm driving from Brighton to Aberystwyth. Let's hope I don't die in that six-hour drive. Um, plenty of time to write the uh, unfinished bits of the show in my head. But the point being, that week gets done, and then it's pregnancy lockdown, and uh, and I commence to having a child. Now I'm going to still be chucking out episodes, I think, every week. I hope every week. Um, because I've got a load of sweet-ass content for you from the Edinburgh Festival. I must have nine or ten still in the can. There's some absolute belters coming up. So you can look forward to all of those, uh, and the post-ambles will be increasingly tired, incoherent, and in various states of crisis. I hope also to be very loved up. So that's what's going on in my little piece of the world. Can I recommend you any other podcast at the moment? I'm still loving Board Gore and Swords. I'm really hoping to turn people onto that. It's a Game of Thrones podcast that during the fallow non-Game of Thrones on telly times, which are more frequent than the times when it's on, they do a little strand called What You Should Be Watching, where they uh, basically make fun of... uh, They talk very amusingly and intelligently uh, about a load of TV. Lots of it American, most of it I haven't seen. And so it's just someone kind of reviewing a first episode of, of a particular show in in a really fun way. So uh, I'm spending a lot of time in the car with those lads. So uh, do download Boar's Gore and Swords with Red Scott and Ivan Hernandez. They're very, very funny and really, really easy to spend time with. Right, this is rambling and falling apart, so I'm going to clear off. I wanted uh, the Scummy Mummies, of course, the Dollop. What else is on the uh, the thing? Stay tuned with Preet. That's really good if you like your American politics, which is so much more interesting than British politics. Uh, the Infinite Monkey Cage... New Yorker politics show. Do you ever get the feeling I'm trying to sort of escape the situation in Britain? Um, the Kurt Vonnegut guys. I've not caught up with that for a while. And um, at some point... Oh, well, there we go. Brian Gittins and friends. That'll do me. Goodbye for now. And uh, I'm going to go off and uh, administrate a bit more. And then gig. Speak to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.